Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. If you've joined us online, welcome to you. We're thrilled to have you. We are in the middle of a series we're calling This I Believe. And so we're considering the foundations of our faith, the basics of what it means to be a Christian in the world. And we have been rehearsing the Apostles' Creed, one of the historic confessions of the Christian faith. There are, there are essentials that all Christians in all places and all times believe, and the Apostles' Creed is a good example of those touch points of our, the foundation of our, our, of our faith. And so I invite you to stand as you're able. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together first thing this morning, and then we'll go into our text, which is found in Acts chapter 2. Ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And now from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, and when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? It's a really good question. Some, however, made fun of them, said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Verse 21. 
and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the people said, thank God, amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You may be seated. Thanks so much. I want to submit to you that not in our wildest imaginations, the most high-budget, AI-produced Hollywood movie, not the greatest dilation of our own intellect, just the expansion of the capacity that our own minds have to conceive and perceive things. Could we possibly understand what it must have been like when the Spirit of God brooded over the abyss of creation recorded in Genesis chapter 1? The first two verses of the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without void. It was chaotic. It was dark. It was, it was void of any order. And verse 2 of Genesis 1 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, or brooding over the waters. It's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. The expanse of chaos and the palpable corporal darkness, utter darkness, over which the Spirit of God now is brooding, restless, if you will, moving, not just physically present, the power of God for, for sure, but also the character and nature and, and personality of God as well, moving over the chaos of early creation. Now, you can move, you can move your body from one place to another, and people might see you physically moving, but they don't know what you're thinking. They don't know necessarily what you're feeling. And, and so it's important for us to understand not only is God there present by his spirit in the early created chaos and darkness, but he is also there in person. And you can almost imagine hearing a conversation within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, this isn't like you. Uh, this doesn't look like you. You, you are light. This is dark. Uh, this is confusion and chaos, but you are order. And so, and so when the Holy Spirit is moving and brooding, you know, a mother broods from room to room in her house looking for a three-year-old who's missing and he's gone quiet and we know it's trouble. And so she broods trying to find him. And so it is with the Spirit of God in early creation. Now, another vignette, another image. When the Holy Spirit stood in fire in front of Moses and the children of Israel as they stood between the Red Sea and their impending doom as the armies of Pharaoh, the armies of Egypt now are, go- are threatening to kill them all, a pillar of fire stands between Moses and the people and this impending army. This is the Holy Spirit. The pillar of fire came and stood between them there. Uh, another image, when Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel, this was a sh- showdown between Almighty God, the prophet Elijah, and 450 prophets of Baal. And an altar was built on the dirt with stones, then wood on top, and a, the carcass of a sacrificed animal on top, a trench dug around the whole altar complex filled with water. And for hours and hours, 450 prophets of Baal tearing their clothes, cutting their flesh, uh, chanting their pagan chants, trying to get fire to come down and consume this offering. And then Elijah stands up after all of that and asks God to call down the fire. The fire falls from heaven, licks up 
the sacrifice, the wood is burned, the stones are also consumed, the dirt is consumed, and all the water in the trench dissipates quickly and, and, and blows away in the wind. And that fire that Elijah called down, that was the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit. Very interesting. When the Spirit filled the prophets for divine revelation, prophetic wisdom, it was the same Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit, as the finger of God, as described, came down and wrote on tablets of stone the law of holiness and handed to Moses, it was the same Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit filled Elijah, it was the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fell on Elisha in a double portion, it was the same Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit filled the prophet Joel, he said it this way, there's going to come a day after the coming of the just one, Messiah Emmanuel, when the Holy Spirit will fall. And Joel specified the difference now. He said the Holy Spirit will come when the Holy One has arrived, the Messiah of the world. The Holy Spirit will come not in particularity, not in uniqueness of sovereign selection upon a particular prophet or priest or king, a special general to lead a great army into victory or to a special worker of miracles so that a mighty thing might happen. Joel said there is going to come a day when the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out, not in particularity, but in generality. He said when people, men and women, boys and girls, every race, every color, every culture are going to receive the same Holy Spirit that brooded over the face of the abyss in creation. Same Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and overshadowed her and the holy thing she brought forth was Messiah Emmanuel, it was the same Holy Spirit. God has set now loose in the world his presence in the person and working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit has personality. And so we call upon him. Last week, our subject was baptism in water. We baptized 36 people last weekend in our services. Isn't that beautiful? Really great. We had many spontaneous baptisms last weekend. In fact, at 1130, we almost ran out of water. <laughs> that would have been bad. Good, good problems. Now, with a water baptism, which we witnessed to last week, we have, we have a priest, we have a candidate, and we have water. And we learned about the symbolism of baptizing people by immersion. Baptizo, the Greek word, to refresh. It means to dip or drench or soak or immerse. And so we see the symbolism in identification with, it, with Jesus. The candidate enters the water. The priest takes the candidate, the the candidate in the water now is confessing death to an old life, to old ways. And then as they are immersed in water, they are buried with Christ in identification with his burial. And then as they come out of the water, identifying with resurrection to new life. So you have a priest who baptizes a candidate in water. They are immersed in water and the symbolism is rich. And the indication is that this is a life change and witness for Christ. Think now in the similar terms. See, see that vision, if you will, of baptism. In the baptism in the Holy Spirit, you also have three elements. You have Jesus, the priest. 
You have the candidate, that's you and me, and you have the person and presence of the Holy Spirit, the element into which. And so Jesus becomes the baptizer. He baptizes all of us, dips us, drenches us, soaks us, and immerses us into his presence, into the Holy Spirit. And there are many benefits that result in this encounter with the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so if you can see that image, you can understand better what happens in this particular process. There are, as I say, benefits that occur in a person's life when they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. I want to mention a few of those. The first one is love, very simply. The first and most important fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Love lies at the heart of the Christian faith. The Bible is the story of God's love for us. The Bible declares that God is love. We know that the two great things in the Christian faith, one is the great commandment, the other is the great commission. The great commandment simply says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's the greatest work of all, this love. It is, it is the hardest thing to do, this love but it is the best reflection of the character and personality of God himself because God is love. And without love, Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians, everything else counts for nothing. So love is, a, is the first and foremost representation of a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit, touched by the Spirit of God. This is a loving person. The second thing I want to mention that is a characteristic of a spirit-filled person, is a person who experiences supernatural power. There is power beyond our own natural abilities, our own natural giftedness, natural capacities, beyond ourselves, supranatural, over and above us. And so the supernatural power of God equips us to do great things. And now Peter on the day of Pentecost, stands up in front of thousands of people, and he's not unfamiliar with the concept, the reality of theology of the person of the Holy Spirit. When he says, this is that, which was spoken of by Joel the prophet, he's speaking out of a, a, a faith tradition in his Hebrew tradition and culture and experience, which now is being manifested in a contemporary reality, a, a, a right now moment. In this moment, it's happening. He said, this is that, present tense. He, he, he says to thousands of people, evidenced by these 120 men and women who've now spilled out onto the street, speaking in languages they've never learned about the great things of God, and people are perplexed, they're amazed. These folks are drunk. I mean, they were carrying on. But Peter said, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. This is that. This is that which was spoken of by Joel the prophet. And so he's trying to put a contemporary in the moment reality impression on those thousands of hearers. Remember those flashcards that, that your mothers maybe used uh, that helped you learn your arithmetic numbers? Do you remember this? My mother used these flashcards all the time. Why did we stop using those? You know, like three plus one equals four. Flat, the flashcard, three plus one, then you flip it over, four. Remember those? Why did we stop using them, you think? I'll tell you why. They work. They actually work. We wouldn't want to do anything that works. <laughs> I can visualize my mother, you know, uh, leaning across the, the bench seat in the front of the car with my sisters, my two sisters and I, my dad's driving along, and my mother was just using flashcards. And so when the, test, when the test came up, 
that copy on the test came up and it says three plus one. I said, wait, I've seen this before. I know what this is. That's four. Three plus one. Four plus zero is four. Two plus two is four. I know, I've seen this. This is that. I recognize it. So we know this work for Simon Peter without any uh, scholarly support or rabbinical input from, from, from Hebrew scholars of the day on the day of Pentecost. He is seeing and hearing and witnessing the presence of the Holy Spirit, and so he identifies with it. He, he, he knows what this is. He knows from the instruction, not only from his own Hebrew faith and culture, walking with Jesus, and also the immediate prophecies of like John the Baptist. John Baptist, when, he, when they ask him, you know, are, are you the guy? And John Baptist says, no, no, he's the guy. He said, I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. John Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. We've, we, we also have heard from Jesus himself right after the resurrection and before the ascension into heaven. This is in Acts chapter 1. In verse 5, Jesus reminds the guys, listen, don't, don't leave. Don't leave the area. Stay in Jerusalem. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus promised this outpouring before he ascended into heaven. So the one great truth of Pentecostal doctrine is that the Holy Spirit hasn't gone anywhere. This is a contemporary reality in the moment. And so the same Holy Spirit that I've just been describing to you in all of these historic occasions is the same Holy Spirit who's in this room right now. He's here. Amazing. Most of you know that Union Chapel has connections, and I have personal connections over the years with with the Methodist denomination. And for too long, Methodists treated the Great Westland Revival that actually swept across this North, North American continent like an out-of-control, wind-blown forest fire. For too long, we treated this activity of the Holy Spirit through the movement called Methodist, initiated by John Wesley many years ago. We've treated it like a museum relic, like, like some, some piece that was relevant in the past, but no longer relevant. This is, this is a statistic most of you are not familiar with, but from here, the, here are these dates, from 1870 to 1920, 1870 to 1920, those 50 years, the Methodists in North America were planting churches. You know, we have an interest in planting churches. We have a new organization that we've just formed recently called the 99 Network, and we're coaching about 30 church planters right now. We've seen over 20 churches planted in prisons over the last couple of years. Uh, and God's opening doors of opportunity to us, not only for individuals who wish to plant a church, but now other pastors of substantial churches. I'll be meeting next Monday with a pastor from Tampa, Florida, who's going to come to Muncie and talk to us. He's already planted eight churches out of his churches in that region of Florida he wants to associate with the 99 Network to have partnership and association so that we can uh, cross-pollinate our resources and, and wisdom and, and do it even better. Say I'm meeting a pastor in Fort Wayne in a couple of weeks, and 
these are doors of opportunity. Not only is God giving us with individuals who want to plant churches, but now with substantial leaders of larger organizations who want to plant churches and have heard about the 99 network and they want to partner with us. And so we, God only knows the opportunities he's giving us and the legacy that, that we'll have. We're very excited about it. And you should know about it. Us Methodists, though, from, ni- from, from 1870 to 1920, those 50 years, check this out. We averaged one new church plant per day for 50 years. One new church plant per day across the North American continent for 50 years. If the Methodists ever woke up again, we could be a great force. There are only 18, listen to this, there are only 18 counties in the continental United States that, do, that does not have a Methodist church in it. We planted churches everywhere, thousands of churches, one per day for 50 years. What if, the, what if an entire movement of people like that suddenly woke up and said, Holy Spirit, fill us again, remind us of our mission and empower us to do it? Change the world. It's very quickly. Short of that and absent of that likelihood, churches like us, we're going to do it. We are doing it. We're going to do it. Listen, you can get stuck in history. You can, you can pretend like this move of God is old and passe. You know, you go to a museum, you see a little cup behind, you know, this glass. You, it, it's right there, but you can't touch it because it's behind this museum glass. There's a little cup, you know, it says something like, this is a cup from which Abraham Lincoln drank from when he was a boy. And you go, oh, you know, pewter cup, how interesting. It's a museum. And, and we treat a move of God. We treat the activity of the Holy Spirit like it's, it's a museum piece. And then it's passe and it's historic. And the people who lived in those days, you know, they you know, kind of got out of control. They're a little emotional about their faith. They're not, as, they're not as sophisticated and complex and evolved as we are now. And so we know better than to expect God to do anything exceptional like that any longer because we're too smart for that now. Really, how's that working out for you? It's not working. It's not working. We need a move of God. We need to embrace our mission and then trust God for the power to accomplish that mission. We've been reduced to a form of religion in too many places without the power. We know the, we, we know the right in, 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 in liturgical churches and some, most of the historic denominations now in America, we know the right vestments. And the right colors for one season to the next. We know at Easter we should, we should wear purple. We know at Pentecost we should wear red. We know, the, we know the right colors, but we don't have the right power. We've learned how to, how, how, how to stand, where to stand on the platform, but we've lost the capacity to know where we stand with God. And this is a danger, a danger for the church. As you know, Beth and I have been pastoring at Union Chapel. We're in our 43rd year. Six months into our tenure here, and I've told this story a few times, I'll tell it again today. At the end of a service, out in a little cornfield church, 43 years ago, I was uh, finishing up the service, and people were leaving the church, and three women approached me. Their names were Opal, Gladys, and Flosie. The names have not been changed. And it's not Flossie, it's Flosie. Opal was the spokesperson for these, uh, these three women. They were all old enough to be, I was 26 years old. 
they were all old enough to be my grandmother. They were very respectful to me. They didn't, they didn't have to be, they, but they were. And Opal spoke for all three of them, and she basically said to me, Pastor, uh, the three of us have been meeting together on a fairly regular basis for the past 30 years, and we meet together to pray that God will do something in our church that is so unusual that no one can explain it except that God has done it. And we want you to know we're praying for you. Now, when I heard that the first time when I was 26, I just thought, that's nice. Isn't that nice? Thank you. That's nice. I didn't know they were actually serious. And I soon began to learn not only were they serious, but God was serious about hearing their prayer and answering their prayer. And when I finally woke up, this is what I thought, this is that. This is that, which was spoken of by Joel the prophet. This is that. Something's going on, and it's happening right now. When I was 18 years old, I'd been a Christian for two years. I thought, I need a coach. I need a mentor. I need someone to disciple me. I need someone older than me who knows what they're doing in the faith. And so I found someone to, to mentor me uh, who was much older. He was 21. <laughs> I figure anyone who's 21 years old must know what they're doing. That's hilarious. And, but that's what I thought. And so I had this friend. He was a student at Purdue University, and he was discipling me along the way. And so one day when I was 18 years old, I went into a little Methodist church to visit this church uh, in Fowler, Indiana. This is my wife Beth's hometown, Fowler. And we were in the little Methodist church there, and they had a guest speaker that day. Okay, fine. And so the, the guest speaker was introduced, and he got up and began to, began to preach, and I would say that he was very passionate. He was enthused about his message. I have no idea what he was talking about, and I'm not sure he did either, but he was he was passionate about it. I could tell he had a good heart about him, so forth. And so I was sitting with my mentor friend about three-quarters of the way back in the room in a, in a, in a, in a pew there on the, on the aisle. And I was sitting there trying to pay attention, just like you are right now, and minding my own business. And I heard the Spirit of God speak to me. And he said, as soon as that guy's done preaching, I want you to get up, go to the front, kneel at the altar rail, and ask that guy to put his hands on you and pray that you receive the Holy Spirit. And I went, no, I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous. That's no. And in, in 30 seconds later, the same impression came to me. As soon as that guy's finished, I want you to get up, go to the front, kneel at the altar rail, ask that guy to put his hands on you and pray that you'll receive the Holy Spirit. I said, I, always, I already thought I told you that that was a bad idea, and I'm not going to do that. Well, this has happened to me many times in my life when God asks me to do something that I just don't find reasonable at all, and I, have, I put him off until I can't resist anymore, and I have many stories of that kind of process. I don't know, maybe you hear from God and respond just obediently right now, but I struggle sometimes, and I was struggling that day, and so I had just put that completely out of my mind, and so that I said, you know, thank goodness that's over with, I don't have to worry about that, and God is my witness. You know, God listens to what I say. I have to give an account to God someday for every syllable I've uttered in settings like this. You should know that I take this very seriously, what I'm doing, and I'm sober about it. I have the fear of God about this. I try not to misrepresent. I, don't, I just want to be clear and I want to be 
straightforward and truthful. And so God is my witness. I'm sitting there, again, just, you know, minding my own business. And my mentor friend, he leans over to me and whispers in my ear, God is my witness. This is exactly what he said. Uh, Greg, he said, God just spoke to me, and he told me to tell you, as soon as that guy (laughs) is done preaching, that you're supposed to get up, go to the altar, ask him to put his hands on you, and pray that you receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what are you going to do with that? So as that man prayed for me, I I need to report I didn't feel anything, I didn't hear anything, I didn't say anything, but what I can report is that something deep in the core of my personhood, I was acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit, and I thought, this is that. Something is happening to me. This is very important. I had no comprehension of how important it was, but I knew that it was important. Now, I know this. This is the same spirit that came through the life and witness of Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation. It is the same Holy Spirit that enlightened John Wesley, causing the great revival in England and subsequently setting ablaze the American continent in the first and second great awakenings. It's the same Holy Spirit that brought forth the holiness revival in this country of the 1890s. It's the same Holy Spirit that erupted on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California on April 14th, 1906, a move of God's Spirit that went around the world. It's the same Holy Spirit that breathed into existence the Jesus Revolution in the 70s, the charismatic and third wave movements in our own times. He is the same Holy Spirit that erupted on the campus of Asbury University on February the 8th this year, and he's the same Holy Spirit who's in this room right now. God is present by his Holy Spirit. Wesley said that we would all become a dead sect if we if we did not hold fast to the original doctrine, discipline, and spirit in which we set out. Let me just remind you, our doctrine is orthodox. Our discipline is consistent and righteous, and ours is a spirit of holiness. It's an evangelical spirit. Ours is a spirit of power. Let me put this statement on the screen. I want you to take this home with you. God wants to unleash on the world a passionate, focused disciplined, humble, spirit-filled church, authentic in our expression of the love of God, the purity of God, and the power of God. That's what he wants to do. You know, we can say, you know, we're planting churches all over the place, all over the world. Yay! We're planting churches. Woo! Man, our churches, we're planting other churches. Yay! We get all happy about, listen, let me tell you what, let me tell you what we're doing. We're reproducing who we are. So if all the churches that we're multiplying all over the place is a reflection of your relationship with God, is that okay with you? All the people in all these churches we're planning are going to have the same relationship with God that I have with God. Is that all right with you? Or would you expect a little bit more? Or something a little bit different. <laughs> that is not in my notes, but that is really effective right there. <laughs> now I'm under conviction. I hate that when that happens. Well, I feel terrible. But that's what God wants. To replicate an authenticity 
that exists in us. Here's the last thing I want to say. Love and power are two indicators. The third thing is purity. Here's what I mean. When you read the book of Acts, there was both a demonstration of power and also a work of holiness. Peter, remember, Peter's the guy who got up on the day of Pentecost. Now rewind 50 days earlier. During the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter is the guy who denied he even knew Jesus the night of the, of the trial. And when Jesus is being crucified, those hours that he was on the cross, Peter is nowhere to be seen. It's like he's, he's somewhere like in his house under his bed in the fetal position, hoping someone doesn't come and get him. Now fast forward 50 days. Penta means five. So here's 50 50 days after Passover, Peter's in the upper room and and experiences this empowering and purifying work of the Holy Spirit. He spills out, I mean, he's as fierce and fearless as a lion. There are thousands of people from all over the known world and he stands up and he's shouting, this same Christ whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and God. Where does that kind of boldness come from? Where's that conviction coming from? We know it wasn't innate within him because he's already demonstrated the fact he's a coward. That comes from a power on the outside of this boy and a change on the inside of this boy. And the hurts and habits and hang-ups of life will continue to torment all of us at various levels until we are exposed to something greater than our pain. Something that can purify and heal us. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. We have so concentrated on outward things that we have underestimated the inward work of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's not right to praise God in church and then cheat your business partner at the end of the week. That's not good. Don't, you, that's not right. To talk to God in worshipful ways and then return home and talk to your spouse in condescending ways. Let me put another statement on the screen that I hope you'll take. The unresolved gap between our confession as a spirit-filled Christian and the conflicted internal condition of our own lives is the crevice into which the postmodern emergent youth culture has fallen. We have this epidemic of young people now emerging in our culture who no longer trust people, trust institutions, trust, trust the church. And so they're identifying as not affiliated, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And that number is growing the younger the people are. This is, should be very sobering to us. And let me tell you the problem. The problem primarily is the hypocrisy that young people see in us. The unresolved gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live our lives. The great witness of the Holy Spirit is above all else a changed heart and a changed life. So here's some homework. Look your spouse. Go home today, look your spouse in the eyes and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for saying one thing and living another. I'm sorry for the wounds I've caused. I'm sorry for the failure. I'm sorry for taking you for granted. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Go home and say to your children, 
I know I've not led by word and deed or deed in a godly way in our home. I've neglected you. I've hurt you. I've made you the focal point of my personal frustrations and personal disappointments. Please forgive me. With God's help, I will be a better person. I will be a better parent. It could be that if you find the presence of the Holy Spirit in a moment like this and do as I've described, one day your spouse or your children may well say, this is that. I saw it happen in my mother. I saw it happen in my dad. I saw an authentic change happen in my family. This is that. God must be real. Jesus can be trusted because I've seen people's lives be changed. The change of the Holy Spirit is a phenomenon, both in power and purity. When I was 16 years old, I found myself in a, in a service in my home church, a little church in Basel, Indiana, on a Friday night. And there were people from other communities who had come under the leadership and direction of a, a couple named George and Eva Wicks. George and Eva coordinated these lay witness missions where they would recruit teenagers and adults to come into a local church over the weekend and these folks from out of town would simply stand up and share their faith in Christ, their witness for Christ, a lay witness mission. George and Eva ultimately led over 400 of these lay witness missions. The night I stumbled into my little home church in Boswell, Indiana, um, and heard the testimonies of some of these people, and I came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I realized that I was a lost person, that I did not have a relationship with God. I had no peace with God. And I found myself later that evening kneeling at the altar, a little kneeling rail in front of the church, and I was lost, and I was confused, and I didn't know what to do. I just knew I needed something but I was lost. I had my hands just like this folded, sitting in front of me at this kneeling rail, and I felt a warm hand come over the top of mine. And I looked up, and it was George Wicks. He asked me two questions. He said, do you need help? I said, yes. And then he asked me, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? I said, no. I never have. He said, would you like to? I said, I would. Yeah, I said, if that's what I need. He said, that's what you need. And he prayed a simple prayer with me. He prayed the prayer. I prayed it after him. And my life changed. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. My life changed. Jesus changed my life. So George and Eva became my spiritual parents. He led me to Christ, and he invited me on these, on these missions. And I would go to di different churches and share my testimony, and I would, I would hang out with George, and he saw in me some potential. And so he'd let me just hang out with him, and I watched him. I've never seen anyone in my life before since witness to virtually everyone he ever encountered, always witnessing for Jesus. It didn't matter who it was or where we were. I, I'm sure that he led more people, personally led more people to Jesus than anyone I've ever met. I said to his pastor as George got older, when George is near the end of his life here on the earth, I want to know about it. I knew that he had developed a bone cancer and he was, he was uh, declining. 
And his pastor called me one day and he said, George is in the hospital, he's probably not coming out. And so I got in my car and I drove to Lafayette, Indiana to St. Elizabeth Hospital. And I found his room and I walked into his room and there he was, just a little shriveled up guy in his 70s and the sheet was up to his nose and, and his wife Eva sitting there next to him holding vigil. And I walked into the hospital room and sat down with them and we began to reminisce about the goodness of God and the things that had happened. A volunteer came in to the room and she was going to change out the ice water and and the pitcher of water on the little stand, you know, next to the bed. And I watched her. She was very cheerful. She was very gracious. She was lovely in every way. She was a middle-aged person. And she came in and she said, I'm just going to change out the water. And, And I just watched George because I knew something would happen. And she grabbed the pitcher of water. And as she was turning to go into the restroom to fill the water pitcher, George said, uh, are, are you a Christian? Just like that. That's all he said. I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's three days from dead. He's just a shriveled up little guy dying. I mean, how could he, have, how could he get you? <laughs> are you a Christian? I went, oh boy. <laughs> she threw up, threw up her hand as she walked into the restroom. Oh yes, I'm a Catholic. She went in there. You could hear the water running. I thought to myself, don't come out, honey. (laughs) If you don't want to be troubled about your soul, don't come out. Well, she came out and she was still cheerful and smiling. She set the pitcher of water down and George just looked at her and said, you do know Jesus died for your sins. That's all he said. Oh my gosh. And the Spirit of God just settled on her. This is that. Settled right on her. And she just and she froze. And her, her this gracious, engaging countenance now immediately changes. And her her head falls down like this, and she her brow furrowed. Her eyes, she clenched her eyes closed, and she just stood there. Three seconds, four seconds. I thought, George has killed her. She's, she's not going to live now. Finally, she lifted her head, and with a sobriety and a sincerity that would imply that what she's about to say, she would never take for granted ever again in her life. And she simply said, yes. I know Jesus died for my sins. (laughs) I'm convinced it was the moment of her conversion. She she came in with with a spring in her step. She walked out very slowly. (laughs) Like she didn't want to leave. Someone sat down at a piano, which was just down the hallway from this room, this hospital room, and they were very accomplished, and they began to play the great hymns of the church, you know, in the garden, and great is thy faithfulness, and amazing grace. Uh, it, it was like heaven. I mean, the, the, these songs cascading down the hallway and into the room. And after a, about an hour or so, I said, George, I'm going to leave 
and I want to I want to pray for you, but I said then I want you to pray for me. And I said, George, I want you to pray. I want you to put your hands on me and pray that whatever is on you will get on me. And I prayed for him and he put his hands on me and prayed for me and our tears intermingled. I kissed Eva on the face. I kissed George on the face. We both knew this was the last time we were going to see each other on this side. And I walked to the door and I turned around and he's laying there and his little hand came out from underneath the sheet and he pointed his finger at me and he smiled at me and he said, I'll see you. I said to him, I'll see you. Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? And so let me, let me just offer an invitation for all of us today. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. I have four invitations. See if you qualify for one of these. The first invitation is this. I'm a Christian. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm also in great need. I'm not asking for some superficial more of something today. I need a touch from God. I don't want to go back to my family, my work, my ministry, without a fresh touch from God. I need, not want, not casually desire, but I need a fresh touch from God. Let me remind you, friends, it's so easy for God's presence to ease away, ooze out of us, to get lost in the trials and challenges, temptations of life. Listen, there's no shame in this. This is the way it goes. Maybe this analogy will help. The finest tractor on the best farm in Indiana from time to time, needs fresh oil. And you say, I need fresh oil today. Now, if that's true for you, would you just raise your hand? That's me. Boy, me too. Lord, see my hand up too, please. How about this second invitation? I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to heaven, but I've never really been filled with the power you're describing. I, I know I need something more in my life. I sense a growing hunger for all that you have for me, and I don't want to miss out on anything God has. His power, his purity, his gifts, supernatural expressions of God's grace in my life. I want the Holy Spirit to fill me. I've heard so many testify to this experience, and I want in on it. If that's your situation, would you just raise your hand where you are? Oh, that's so good. That's so great. How about this third invitation? There is a specific area, one locked closet, one hindering place that you've not yet surrendered or been delivered from. This one area stands between you and God. Listen, that one area between you and God can keep you from God's best in lots of areas of your life. It's time to let that go. It's time to surrender it to God. If that's true for you, would you just lift your hand? So many. It's good. One more question. And I'd be so wrong if I didn't ask.
The conclusion of the Pentecost event in Acts chapter 2, which we've read about today, is the inclusion of about 3,000 souls who called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. They were forgiven of their sins, made right with God. And I've preached this entire message on the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but someone has heard another question. Someone has heard another sermon. And you say, I want these Christians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want these Christians to be refreshed. But the issue for me is the issue of my eternal life. Will you pray for me so that I will know that my sins are forgiven and that I'm in right relationship with God? I want to know without any doubt that I'm right with God. If that's true for you, would you just raise your hand? Wow. Wow. Now let me pray for us. Lord, I come to you today with gratitude in my heart, so grateful for your loving provision, the loving authority of your word, which we can apply to our lives without hesitation. So I pray, oh God, for all of your people in this room today who need a touch of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would fill us, fill us with your Holy Spirit. If you then, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Maybe just quietly, just, just under your breath, just where you are right now. If you're watching online, wherever you happen to be, just pray, fill me, Holy Spirit. Empower my life. Restore my life. Heal me. I have lots of hurts, habits, hang-ups. Heal me today with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Now, for anyone who needs to take their first step of faith today, maybe you've heard those questions that my spiritual father, George, asked me. Do you need help? You say, yes. Have you received Jesus as your personal Savior? You say, not yet. No. For you, if you'll pray this prayer after me, God will hear it. Everyone together now, no one prays alone. Are you ready? Dear Heavenly Father, Forgive me of my sins, all the things I've done wrong. I need you in my life. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. I want to know you. I want to live for you. Thank you for saving me and for giving me peace in my relationship with you. I give my life to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, would you just remain seated as we do the closing song and let this song minister to you further, okay?